You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 84, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Sarah Tetlow, founder and CEO of Firm Focus. She utilizes her sympathetic coaching approach to help stressed out and burned out attorneys get their passion back and effectively manage multiple complicated projects simultaneously. Firm Focus is a company that helps legal professionals to become more effective and efficient by teaching them mindfulness and other habits for maximizing productivity. You can find out more about Sarah at firm-focus.com and head on over to technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Sarah Tetlow to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the interview that you're about to hear with Sarah Tetlow of Firm Focus, you'll hear her talk about all of the different ways in which she helps lawyers and other professionals to become more focused and productive in their work. And I really enjoyed speaking with her. And because I am a lawyer, have been a lawyer for a long time, I can relate to a lot of the challenges that she talks about helping her clients with. And the thing I wanted to mention in this short segment before the interview is about some of the habits of mind that lawyers and other professionals, in fact, all of us can develop as a result of being in the same kind of situation, being called on to address certain types of problems repeatedly. I'll just mention one, and it reminds me of what in Buddhist meditation is often called monkey mind, which is that tendency of the mind to bounce around and follow whatever random thoughts happen to pop up in our mind. As a lawyer, one of the habits of mind or types of mind that I've noticed develop in me and other lawyers, what I've called critic mind. (laughs) As a lawyer, I'm often called on to see problems, to notice problems, to point out to the client what might go wrong in a certain situation so that I can advise them on how to protect themselves against that thing happening. Often as lawyers, we are risk managers And it can be super valuable to a client. It helps clients to anticipate problems and plan for them so that they're not taken by surprise when those problems happen and even to help prevent the problems from occurring. But the downside, when that habit of mind of criticizing or pointing out potential problems or flaws becomes so strong and overriding is that uh, it can be hard to turn that habit off. And lawyers also get a reputation for being party poopers, <laughs> deal breakers, the person in the room who's always saying no to everything, who's always saying you cannot move ahead with this project because here's the million things that could go wrong with it. That's the problem when that habit of mind, which is very valuable in moderation, can get taken to an extreme. And I can say, you know, when all day long clients are calling on me to spot problems that no one else is seeing, it's hard at the end of the day to then turn that habit off so that in the rest of my life, I'm not just seeing the problems 
and I'm also able to see good things that could happen in the future, which is not usually what my clients are asking for. So I'm talking about lawyers, but I'm sure many of you in your own lives can relate to this type of habit of mind. Maybe in your role as a parent, you're looking out for risks or a teacher or whatever your job or personal role is, you might be in a situation where you're often the one who has to look out for potential problems, and then you might find it hard to turn that off or to moderate that habit. So I I mentioned this critic mind as something that if you're meditating, you can practice uh, being attuned to and noticing. You can notice when these critical thoughts pop up and see if you can learn to notice them and not automatically react to them. And that can be a way to moderate that habit of mind so that it, it remains in balance and doesn't go out of control. So I hope you find that helpful. Again, I hope that the non-lawyers among you can relate that to your own life in some way and find it helpful. And I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Sarah Tetlow of Firm Focus. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Nice to see you and hear you again, Robert. (laughs) Your work is something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is uh, helping professionals, including lawyers like me, be more focused and productive. So I'm curious to know how you got started on something so specialized. You know, what motivated you to get involved in helping helping lawyers and other professionals be to be focused? Great question. Well, I always was interested in law. I started in second grade wanting to become a lawyer. And my mom used to joke and say, you're going to have to be a judge because you always get the last word. So that was sort of the running joke as the younger child and always needing the last word. And I followed that path and I ended up becoming a litigation paralegal. Um, The short story there is I fell in love with Santa Barbara, California and decided to live there where there is not an accredited law school nearby and just took a different path. And I do not live in Santa Barbara anymore. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. But what brought me to that point was I was working at a bunch of different law firms, big firms, small firms, as a litigation paralegal. And I loved it. I loved what I did. I loved supporting the lawyers. I loved doing everything that a lawyer did, except for those things that only lawyers can do, argue in court and sign pleadings, and um, really had a supportive role. And what I found throughout my years working with lawyers is that I had the skills and I could see where they needed help and how to fully support them when things got very overwhelming and very chaotic. I always seemed to have a calm presence about me and could kind of see the timeline of a project. Mm. So what was realistic in being able to achieve the goal or the deadline and using resources, whether that was pulling in other team members, outsourcing some of it, requesting a deadline or an extension, to be able to effectuate projects successfully using tools and resources available to the lawyers and to us, and also proactively communicating with them well in advance. The deadline that we have set two weeks from now is not realistic for these reasons, and here's my recommendation so that we can still be successful. And lawyers really appreciated that because I didn't fail at the last minute. I gave them time to be able to assess how we can shift course and still deliver and still be successful. 
And so later in my career, some shifts happened. I had some babies. I made a slight career change, um, not necessarily by choice, but I became marketing and business development manager for a firm that I was working for. And it was during that transition period that I just took my commute time to really think and explore where is there a need? What are my skills? What am I good at? What do I love doing? And being a very organized person and having a sense of project management, time management, attention management, task management, I married those and I started Firm Focus ultimately to help lawyers and legal professionals with those skills. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It speaks a lot to my own experience. You just used management in relation to a lot of what you help lawyers do. And, you know, not to fault lawyers, but, uh, you know, lawyers don't get trained in management generally. It's not part of law school education. What lawyers tend to excel at is doing the legal work, handling a specific argument or a brief or something like that. And when it comes to dealing with deadlines, particularly as a practicing lawyer, many different interwoven projects. You know, in law school, you might take three or four classes at a time, but you're not handling 50 cases at a time or 100 or something like that with lots of parts, lots of different people interacting on them. And it sounds like that's what you, you, the skill you brought to the table was helping lawyers deal with what's a lot of shifting sands, unpredictability, and how to step back from the weeds that the lawyers are, have dived into and are excel at, yeah. uh, but to make sure they can actually succeed. Absolutely. I, I actually, one of the systems that I'll implement with some of my clients is I call it my legal eagle system, which really takes us away from living in the forest and trying to produce the work moment by moment and actually stepping out of that, stepping back into the full sky legal view of what's on my horizon and how can I how can I plan better and prioritize better? And it's interesting because with what you what you just commented on, Robert, that is what I find often with my clients is that they're they're living and working in the moment and not in a mindful way in more of a, I just need to meet these billable hours. I need to get this project. This is the most imminent deadline that I have on my, on my plate. And so this is my top priority. Instead of really, um, if you think about Stephen Covey's four quadrant model, yeah. we should be quadrant two, focusing in quadrant two. They're important projects, but they're not yet urgent. And that's where I'm really trying to shift my clients into getting a little bit more into quadrant two, which is important and not urgent. And they're more often living in quadrant one, which is important and urgent. Um, and just to fill in the gap, there's four quadrants. Quadrant three is not important and urgent. And quadrant four is not important, not urgent. So those are the kind of four quadrants. And we probably spend 80% of our time, if not more, in that quadrant one. And, and really, they're successful and um, practical ways in which you can live a little bit more balanced in, in the four quadrants. Yeah. And, you know, I think in my own experience, and one of the reasons I was motivated to to work on technology and mindfulness is that as technology has permeated the legal profession and all other professions, it's, it's put to our, the forefront of our minds those urgent but not important tasks so much more than ever before, right? Text message comes in, you get notified. It appears to your mind as if that's super urgent, whether or not it's important. And it's so easy to get sucked into those urgent but not important tasks. 
Yeah. And if your audience can see, I'm beaming because everything that you're saying is spot on and it's way more exciting. We get really excited when we get an email that pulls our attention away from whatever it is we're trying to focus on. That's our dopamine release. I call them donut holes. That's our donut hole. And so while technology can be incredibly supportive of being more productive, it also can hinder it if you're not using those tools effectively. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, you know, practically how you help lawyers accomplish this. It's it's one thing to say in the abstract, it's a good idea not to get sucked in by the urgent. It's another thing to actually do that. Yeah. It's habit forming and changing those habits and to support healthier habits. And so it's a long engagement with me when I work with them because we are making these tiny changes and tiny tweaks to their practice and trying to marry the environment with the healthier habit, which makes your brain, the autopilot reaction is to do these more successful techniques to support a more proactive workday instead of reacting. And there are so many components that go into time management. There are time management systems out there that are not a one-size-fits-all. So that's what I can bring in is how can we take these systems that I'm aware of and I've implemented them to create a customized experience for the client based on their thought process, their work environment, and who they are as a person and what works for them and what sticks for them. And then there's there's also just other variables that go into time management, distractions, interruptions, analysis, paralysis, perfectionism, procrastination, meetings, interruptions of all all of these things that we identify when I initially work with a client, what their biggest culprits are so that I can help prescribe and diagnose and make these changes that they then can go and implement into their practice and then come back to me with the struggles that they have in implementing them or what's proven successful so that we can continue to improve their overall practice. Yeah, let me mention uh, what I know from my own experience and from speaking to other lawyers, our biggest concerns, fears, also the sometimes expressed as skepticism. The first one I always hear from people, and I remember feeling this way myself early on, was I can't stop attending to the urgent because I need to be super responsive to my clients. And if I don't, they'll fire me or stop hiring. You know, I'll go out of business and I'll be living on the street. So what do you say to lawyers who respond that way? And in my experience, it's super common. It is incredibly common. And my response to that is when you were on an airplane, when you used to fly, then and maybe, maybe you are flying and you are not responsive for that block of time, you're not responsive for that block of time. And that's okay. You address their needs as soon as you're able to. If you're in a deposition, You're not responsive for that block of time. If you're in a hearing, if you're in trial, you know the tools that you can utilize to support your out of office. And by that, I mean out of office. So you can communicate with your clients, with your team, with your colleagues using the out of office feature to support you also working, doing deep work. Now, I I recognize and understand that's easier said than done. When you're in a deposition, you don't have control to check your email necessarily until a break. When you're sitting at your desk and working, it's pulling at you throughout the day because you can check your email. So I usually say, think about 
what's the minimum length of time that you really are responding to your clients? Now, there's a difference between reading their email, which feels like you're responding because you've put your attention to it and you've read it, but are you actually hitting reply in that moment and writing something? And so if the challenge there is to just be more deliberate. So when you're working on a, on a brief or doing some research, set a timer for an hour, turn off your email, stay focused for one hour. And if you're familiar with like Pomodoro, Pomodoro is 25 minutes, five minute break, not checking email. That's going for a walk, getting water, using the restroom, 25 minutes again, five minute break. And then at the end of the hour, when you go and look at the email, it now hasn't pulled you away from what it was you were focusing on, which creates a completely different mindset to be able to read the email and respond to it, prepared to actually give your attention to that client, to that question or comment or email without it feeling like that just pulled me away from what I'm trying to do and stirred up some emotions. And then you try to go back to what it was you were working on. And then an hour later, you respond to the client who emailed you. So I'm just setting you up to just be more intentional about when you actually read the email and then are prepared to respond to it. Yeah, it's super helpful because I think anyone listening can relate to that experience of working on something and then in a half-hearted way, looking at the email, as you said, not responding, going back. And it turns out you, you are not really attending to either thing efficiently or productively, the task you were working on or the email. So by trying to do both, you're actually accomplishing neither. And you're adding to your stress, as you said, and you're making yourself more distracted and less focused. So it's a lose, 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 lose. <laughs> you know, all exactly. And there's nothing wrong with uh, crafting an out-of-office response that assures your clients that you're you're going to be responsive at a specific time or by the end of the day. That's comforting as the client to get the out-of-office response that says, I'm in a meeting or I'm focusing on filing. I'll respond to you by 4 p.m. today. So just set up the expectations. Obviously, choose your words delicately based on you know your clients, you know who's going to get out of office. If they're going to be irritated that you're working on somebody else's filing, then you can choose your words a little bit more wisely. They don't know what's on your calendar. They don't know why you can't respond till four, but they know you'll respond by four. And that gives them the confidence that they are going to hear back from you as long as you then follow through. So be sure that whatever expectation you're setting up in your out of office is one that you can be successful with. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. And what about the situation in which there is a client who truly has an emergency? And I always tell people, but that's actually, for most people, much more rare than we tend to think it is. You know, our minds tell us that that's going to be happening constantly every day, uh, even though for most people that's not true. But, but it does happen. You know, it does occur that there's a client who may, maybe truly has a need for you to respond within 10 minutes every mm-hmm. once in a while. How do you set yourself up for that and deal with it uh, responsibly? So as you mentioned, we, we think in our head that that's going to happen more often than it does. I do recognize it does happen and we don't want to lose a client or piss off a client. And so we need to be able to be responsive. But we also know if we're facing the same reality, that same client, if they're going to send you an email saying urgent need, they're going to also call you. 
And back in the day when we were in the office, they're probably going to come walk down the streets of whatever city you live in and come to your office and demand to see you. So we know when it's when it really is that emergency, they're going to find they're going to find you. Yeah. From a psychological point of view, it relieves the pressure on us individually to take all of the responsibility necessarily for dealing with that emergency and put some of the responsibility back on the client for deciding when something's truly urgent and how, what form of communication to use to get in touch with you. I think that's great. Humans are surprisingly trainable. Even clients are trainable. And if you're historically responding within three minutes, if you respond in 10 minutes, you failed in their eyes. That's too long. So if you set up the expectations that you respond within, what's the reason with what, what's the expectation of your firm? Because I understand some firms have policies. We respond yeah. to clients within hours, days. What, what is that? So I encourage you to look into what's the policy, what's the culture of your firm and stay within those parameters. But also be more deliberate and, and create your own healthier work habits to be within those parameters, but not to allow clients or others to abuse your time. Yeah, and, and again, I found from my own experience that as I've done that over time, the expectations have changed. It doesn't necessarily change immediately, but you know, once I started setting those expectations consistently and reliably, the people I was communicating with, you know, changed accordingly for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So I know you, you know you mentioned a, a whole variety of time management systems and and an approach you take to uh, working with clients. I know I dove into a bit of the weeds on dealing with urgent communications and, and all that, because I know it's what is you know at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and what drives their days. But to step back and you know talk about uh, when a client comes to you, what would they expect in terms of a process for working with you? Great. So I prescribe a minimum of six months to be able to successfully implement healthier habits and when we start working together, we'll do a 90-minute kind of deep dive discovery. How do you think? How do you process? How do you organize? Where are you at in your firm? And what type of support are you getting? Or what challenges do you face because of the culture of the firm or the policies of the firm? And once we've done the discovery, we'll also, I send a questionnaire. It's about 51 questions that they can score one to five about themselves, a self-assessment. And I then assess, I take a look at that and analyze it. And we identify a little bit where their strengths and maybe their challenges or weaknesses are. We identify some goals. Where do we want to be in six months? And not only professionally, but also personally. Because to be productive, to manage your time, ultimately the goal there is that there's something in your personal life that is being sacrificed because of your inefficient use of time while working. You're working 10, maybe more hours a day and your billable hours are maybe just hitting the quota by the firm. Or maybe you've got crazy billable hours and you just don't know how to set, set any boundaries. So we'll establish some goals. We'll assess what, what they are professionally and personally for the next six months. Then we get into more organization. What's your mental organization like? How are you organizing your, your thoughts, your to-dos, your projects, your um, assets in your brain? And what's your physical organization look like? How are you 
brain dumping what you need to do and tracking that effectively so you know what your priorities are throughout the week. We meet weekly, 30 minutes every week. And the next phase is we go into productivity strategies overall. So here's where I kind of come in and we just make these small changes. So if distractions are a huge culprit in your head, internal distractions, thoughts that you come up with and kind of external distractions, things that are the shiny object syndrome, then we identify ways to mitigate or delete those from your world. And we move through that process. And then two kind of subsets that we work on because they're they always come in. One is project management. How are you seeing projects that are a week away, a month away, 90 days away, and being able to keep those on your plate for the week so that you can keep your attention on them, ultimately to know what you're working on and also what you're not working on each week. And also the next sort of ancillary piece of what we do is email. Email is, uh, we've already kind of dived into it a little bit more. It's a huge piece of what I work with my clients on. There are so many things that go into email. What is our mindset around email? How are we handling our inbox? How are we organizing our email? What's our calendar look like? And are we using tools effectively to make our brain work a little bit less when it comes to email? I have a program called A Fresh Look on Outlook, and it's about techniques approaching the art of email because email really is an art and that's also an acronym for how to organize your email. So that's often a piece that we'll go into. And each client's a little bit different. So some clients, we might spend a month on the organization systems and then move on from that. Others, we may not need to go there. They might have great systems set up and really their problem is more email or distractions and interruptions. And we may spend a month on email. We may spend three months on email. So that's kind of the the big picture of what it looks like to work together. And then after the six months, we can keep going month to month as needed. Awesome. I really appreciate the focus on all of those different elements, including project management. As I said, I didn't get any training in project management in law school. I was a software developer before that and had some practice from doing software development. And in fact, the the contrast was so striking that in the software world, which could use a lot of improvement in project management, at least there was project management that would be done in developing software projects. And it seemed like uh, lawyers would just know what the legal deadline is for getting something completed. But then there was no other timeline necessarily or process for meeting that. And I I think I found that's one reason why lawyers often end up just cramming near the deadline because there's no other process in place. And even on the software end, like in my firm, it's common. We've purchased uh, docketing software, which is deadline, legal deadline software. And out of the box, all it has are the final legal deadlines for getting something done. So we've had to build into it interim deadlines, milestones along the way, because otherwise just that final deadline is not very helpful. Yeah, it creeps up on you. Yeah. (laughs) It's protection against malpractice. So it's good in that way. But other than that, it's not really useful as a project management tool just to hit on what you said about this particular software being out of the box. So that's, that holds true for a lot of productivity apps or even email. If you use Outlook, there are so many amazing features within that 
program that can support automation and efficiency. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, lawyers aren't, they, they just don't have the time to learn how to use it right. properly. Right. So I know in the world of wine, you don't, you think you know what you know until you realize you, you don't really know that much. So I don't probably know the whole breadth of what there is about Microsoft Outlook, but I know enough to come into my clients and say, do you use this feature? Okay, let's, let's talk about how you can use this. And what this type of email that comes in from a client, let's set up these rules because there are the rules have a lot of great things that you can do with them. There's mm-hmm. it's endless almost what you can do to set up rules to support getting notifications. You asked earlier also about what if there really is an emergency yeah, and wanting to be responsive to that. And I, I mentioned that the client is going to track you down, but there's also rules with an outlook that you can isolate an email from a particular client that it, it pings for you. And that's the only email that pings for you. So you can set up these tools to help support these what ifs, but be able to work more intentionally throughout the day, knowing that those rules are set up to support that. Yeah, it's great. And I know, you know, you mentioned earlier offloading the mental effort that it takes. And if we think about how much effort goes into any individual email, even if it only takes you a few seconds to read it and think about that. How many emails do we receive a day? Hundreds. You know, you multiply that few seconds by, and then the switching cost of having to get back to what you were doing and get your head wrapped around it and multiply that. It's a massive amount of effort and drain throughout the course of a full day. Every email is, contributes to your decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the email that is a webinar from two weeks from now, gosh, do I want to go to that webinar? It looks interesting. Yeah. And then it sits there, or maybe you've implemented some tools like my art system to be able to delay that or defer it for another right. day to make that decision or make that decision now and then use the tools to get it out of your inbox. But it's it definitely contributes to that decision fatigue. So you're absolutely correct, Robert. Yeah. And the other thing I'd like to ask a little bit more about is you mentioned when you're interviewing clients and starting to work with them, taking into account what type of firm they're in, maybe what their position is in the firm. And I really appreciate that because things do real. Obviously, being in the position of a partner at a big firm who has a lot of staff working for them also has a lot of responsibilities, very different from a junior associate, very different from a solo practitioner could be radically different situation. Can you talk, I mean, obviously we could spend a long time talking about that, but could you speak a little bit to how you work with people depending on their situation? Yeah, and I'll, I'll sidestep for just a moment. I also do small group coaching. They have to have a commonality. So maybe they're on the same team or they're the same level or the same practice group. And the benefit there is that if we're talking about the same team, then we can get like a 360 degree view of how everybody can support each other to be more productive instead of just me working one-on-one with someone, which is also highly effective. But if they're a partner, my working with them one-on-one is going to look a bit different because they can implement a lot of these strategies and there's no one that's really, there's clients that are needing their attention and expecting response time. But certainly like working with an associate, some of the pushback I do hear is that the partner that they work for is somebody who expects me to respond right away. And normally 
I'm then challenging them or working with them with the same thing I mentioned earlier. What is the weakest link? What is the minimum expected response time from that partner? And is that your assumed minimum expected response time? Or has this actually been communicated to you? Yeah. If you have the conversation with the partner and I'm working with Sarah from Focus, I really want to work more intentionally and be more productive. If I, you know, what is your expectation for me to respond? If I respond within 45 minutes, would that be acceptable to you? Um, Unless you call me about more urgent needs. And oftentimes the answer is yes. If they actually go to the partners, the answer is yes, 45 minutes or in fact, I don't expect you to respond for two hours. Right. But there's this feeling, especially from maybe lower level associates or even up to senior associates, that they're expected to respond within moments. And that's often not the reality. Yeah, it's very helpful. I mean, I remember when I was an associate finding out, but it took a while to even know to ask, or I might have even found it out inadvertently, that you know, certain partners set aside Thursday to review drafts from associates. And I didn't know that. And if I had known that earlier, I wouldn't have crammed stuff in on Monday to get it to them, only to have it sit on their desk for for three days. (laughs) Exactly. So that's another piece that I'm working with my clients on is that communication piece, proactive communication. And in that situation, Robert, if you, like you said, if you knew that they didn't look at it till Thursday, then you could restructure your week a little bit differently to be able to still meet that expected deadline, but knowing that you can also reprioritize a couple of things Monday through Wednesday. If you didn't know that, and I would certainly encourage you to find that out if you can, but if you didn't know that, even on Monday, if you're cramming and stressing because you think that the partner needs this by the end of the day, but maybe that was sort of a self-created deadline, Mm -hmm. then just proactively communicate, send an email to the partner or to the client for that matter. I'm working on this this motion. I will have it to you by Tuesday at 5 p.m. Please let me know if that is acceptable or if, Mm -hmm. and then you might get a response back from them. Let's be real. The partner's never going to say, I'm not going to look at it till Thursday. So they'd be like, yes, that's acceptable. Tuesday by five is fine. But then the key there as well is to succeed with that. Because a lot of times that's what I have seen with my clients is that they set an expectation and then they drop the ball. And Mm -hmm. that really starts to tear down the trust with the partner or with the client. So you can set up a deadline that you know is realistic, but you need to also follow through with that deadline. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've done, because I've been in my own firm for many years now, with clients, if I don't want to seem like I'm suggesting that I delay, but I'm trying to find out, I'll say, hey, look, here's what I'm thinking of. Here's what I'm planning to do. Maybe ask them an open-ended question. Do you have any other thoughts on the schedule? Something, And then they might volunteer something like, well, you know, I'm really not going to get to it until Friday, no matter when you send it to me, because I've got some other thing going on. Yeah, And it's a way for me to not suggest to them that I want to delay, I'm letting them know I'm ready and able to get it to them sooner if need be, but I'm also giving them the opportunity to let me know if there is something else in their schedule that would allow me to adapt. Exactly. I have one client right now I'm working with, and um, this is a form of procrastination. What what he'll do is send the email to the partner and say, um, 
I, I drafted this letter to the client status update. Let me know if it's okay to go. Mm-hmm. And the partner doesn't respond or it takes a week to respond. Mm-hmm. And so I've encouraged him to put an email. I drafted the letter to the client. I will send it Tuesday afternoon if I don't hear back from you. Yeah. Because it's very clear expectations on both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then I'm careful to also let this client, this client of mine know, then you need to send it Tuesday at noon. Right. So you have to have your own systems in place to be successful. Because if you're going to create this proactive expectation with the partner that you work with, because his, his complaint, my client's complaint is that he doesn't hear back from him. And right. then when he does, it's urgent or it's right on a day where he's working on an MSJ. And so he, there are ways to, again, train each other, but yep. in a healthy way. But you have to be able to follow through. You have to know I'm sending this Tuesday afternoon if I don't hear back from him. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And to talk about clear and open communication, I think about... Um, just like you mentioned, the client will know when to use phone versus email. You know, I've done that. I've had clients where I've been in the position of that associate to the partner, but with the client. I send the client a draft and say, I'm looking for feedback. And then I've learned certain clients uh, need or want a phone call. So either I'll ask them or I'll learn that from experience over time. It's best for me to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, that I've sent you that draft. Sometimes they may not have picked up on how urgent or not it was. And often phone is a better way to push that thing over the finish line. Yeah. But you have to know the person. Exactly. And and be organized. Take good records. What does this client prefer? And Robert, just to also kind of bring this all home, now that we are working in almost exclusively remote environments or maybe hybrid on some teams, but we default to technology. That's exactly how we have to communicate. And so prior to March 2020, when you're communicating with a partner or an associate or team member, that looked different. You'd walk down the hall and you would say to them, I sent you that draft letter. Can I go and get it out the door? And now to be efficient, it it doesn't, it's not practical to I agree with what you were saying about picking up the phone for the client, if that's the communication they want, but it's not practical to pick up the phone to the partner and say, can I send that letter right now or Skype them or however you message them. And so that's why in your communication with your colleagues, with your team members, being as clear as possible and anticipating what works for you, what makes sense to get that final draft out the door when you need edits Mm -hmm. back by so that you can move forward with your project there's just a need to be clear in the details when you communicate with your team and be a little bit proactive about it. Yeah, that's a great, great pointer about the way things have shifted somewhat as a result of, of everyone working remotely. You know, I think the last thing is, and I think this is implicit in everything you've said, as we've been talking about how to be more efficient and productive and get things done, is that there's a, a massive side effect of all of this, which is it also reduces stress levels. <laughs> uh, can you speak to that and to whether that's something you work on explicitly with people uh, when, you, when you work with them? Absolutely. And that goes to, again, the kind of the full picture of being productive. Are you getting a good night's sleep? Or are you waking up to thoughts of things you need to do and remembering, oh my gosh, I didn't finish that project and tomorrow I've got 
a four-hour Zoom depot? How am I going to fit this in? Being able to get that workout in, get time in with your family, because those pieces of it are what's going to help reduce your stress. And I work with my clients to reduce the length of time that they're working, increase their billable hour if that's what we're working with. Um, Not everyone has the billable hour, but most of my clients do. And being able to walk away from it at the end of the day and not have to, I'm not saying that my clients don't always have to return to some work later in the evening. Mm -hmm. Lawyers need to be responsive to clients. They need to be responsive to their team. But my goal is that that responsiveness looks a little bit more like just answering a couple of emails if if need be mm-hmm. versus like, great, family's in bed. I'm going to sit here and work on this brief for three hours yeah. and then go to bed at midnight and have to get up at 530 because that's not healthy and that is going to contribute to stress and other issues that don't help with an overall productive person. So the tools that I'm working with them on for their work day also translate into a healthier full picture of what they're doing with their time. And the last thing I'll say on that is it's important to finish your work day with a shutdown routine, just really going, okay, got all these things done. This can wait till tomorrow. I'm comfortable with that. This can wait till next week. I'm comfortable with that. Oh, I really need to do this one last thing. Otherwise, I'm, I am going to be up tonight. Set the timer. I'll do it for 10 minutes. And then I am walking away from this office. And certainly with working at home, for many of us that are working at home, I understand that there's not always the luxury of having a separate room or a separate space in your house to be able to shut it off. But if you are able to shut that door to mentally say, I'm done for the day, or close the laptop or, and put something on top of it. Just have that trigger that mm-hmm. tells your brain when it sees your computer, I don't need to work right now. I don't need to do that one more thing. It can wait till tomorrow. I, I'm fine with that and be comfortable with that. Yeah, it's really excellent advice about having a, a boundary uh, that you demarcate through a, a shutdown routine. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Um, can you just tell people how they can reach out to you, find out more about you, and, and uh, if they want to work with you, how they can reach you? Great. Firmfocus.com. So that's firm-focus.com. And my email is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at firm-focus.com. And I, rec- I will uh, encourage anyone to connect with me on LinkedIn, Sarah Tetlow, T-E-T-L-O-W. Um, And I look forward to connecting with anyone and certainly can have a 30 minute complimentary discovery call with anybody just to find out a little bit more if we'd be a good fit to work with each other. Fantastic. That's great. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for for talking to me. Really appreciate all of the work that you're doing for lawyers and other professionals. And thanks for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you, Robert. Always a pleasure. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Sarah Tetlow, founder and CEO of Firm Focus. You can find out more about Sarah at firm-focus.com. And I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with our next special guest. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel and rate and review and share the episode with your friends. 
And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com to get free and practical tips for beating digital distraction and for being more productive and focused and creative and happy with your technology. Right now, if you go to our webpage and sign up for our mailing list, you'll receive a free guide for how to manage your technology use and achieve balance with your technology.